briefly draw your attention to a couple of things. One, there are less yellow signs on the back walls this week than there were last week. Stephanie tells me we're about half a dozen people from being fully staffed. Only a couple of them could come from this service. So if there are about two of you who could sign up to serve our kids for the next six months during the nine o'clock hour, uh, then you guys will be absolved of all guilt and I'll stop making these announcements at the beginning of my sermon. So uh, all of us can make that a matter of prayer and hopefully a couple can, can step up and serve our kids really well in that. Um, I also want to mention on the, on the back of your worship guide, if you'll notice, there is a financial update today. It's quite complicated. It's written in secret code. You'll have to meditate on it to figure it out later. But uh, the good news is, is that our capital campaign is, is going really well. The remarkable faithfulness on your part in that regard. There's a red number in there that indicates that we dug a hole early in the year in our general fund, and that is restricting some essential purchases and essential budget uh, items, as well as some hopes and dreams of our staff and leaders <clears throat> in, that are called preferred on there. And so if you'd make that a matter of prayer this week and not just information, that would be, that would be most helpful. If you will open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, I would like to pray for us as we finish the back end of that chapter in our study of the gospel of Matthew today. So would you bow with me, please? Father, have mercy upon us that we might see the beauty of your son and the life that he offers to us and we would forsake all others for it. May your spirit find no resistance in our hearts and lives today. May may we welcome his good work through the word now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In chapter 11, if you remember, it starts with John the Baptist in prison sending some of his disciples to Jesus, asking this pivotal question, are you the one, Jesus, or should we look for another? Jesus sent the disciples back, bearing the message, tell him what you saw, tell him what you heard. Tell him about my words, tell him about my works. Tell him that I am the one that Isaiah predicted who, who would give the blind sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. I am, Jesus says, the one. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for to rescue you from your sin. And Jesus affirms John then, though he be imprisoned and have quest, has questions. And then after that, he turns and issues the severest of warnings for anyone who would reject Jesus. Back in verse 23, we closed our time last week with these verses. Jesus is talking to Capernaum as a city, one of the cities where he did many great works, taught many times. You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll you'll be brought down to Hades, he says. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So, Capernaum, will you go to heaven? Jesus says, no, you're going down to Hades. Jesus is saying this. He says, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than than it is for the people of Sodom. And if you remember your Old Testament stories well, that's not a good thing to say. Sodom was obliterated. 
Back in Genesis 19, the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And when they looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward that land, they looked up. The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so Sodom and Gomorrah became kind of the poster, poster boys for what it, mean, what it meant to be destroyed. If you're going to say someone's going to be destroyed, you should say it's like Sodom. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, it says, Whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing growing, no plant can sprout, and overflow like what? Like Sodom. And Jesus says, these are Jesus' words, it'll be worse for you than Sodom if you reject me. Well, that was this. That was Jesus telling us that to reject him is the severest of mistakes. That's the bad news. Today, the news gets a lot happier, uh, thankfully, in the last few verses of the chapter. In verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And Matthew does something really remarkable here. He lets us eavesdrop on a conversation within the Trinity. The Father and the Son are in conversation here in these two little phrases. It's a little two-phrase prayer that Jesus does. He is giving thanks to the Father for things hidden and things revealed. The things, I think, are the things he's just been talking about. The things, his words and works that reveal him to be the Messiah. And they are hidden from the wise. Hidden, not like Jesus spoke them in secret or whispered them so they couldn't hear, but hidden in the sense that they would not believe it. Now, it raises an interesting question Why would Jesus be thankful that these things were hidden by the Father from those who are wise? Isn't being wise a good thing? D.A. Carson helps us here in his commentary. He says, the point about the wise is not their education any more than the point about the children is their age or size. The contrast is between those, he says, who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. It's between the self-sufficient, we could say, and those who recognize their need. The proud, we could say, and the humble. So when we talk about the wise, we might, we might call them in our vernacular, we'd say these are wise guys. Okay. They, wisdom, normally a virtue, is not a virtue here, the way Jesus is referring to them. Matt Woodley says, this does not mean smart people cannot follow Jesus. Throughout the centuries, he says, Jesus has sought and found many brilliant disciples. Jesus isn't opposed to scholarship. Actually, the church needs more scientists and economists, doctors, mathematicians, physicists. Jesus' point is that our brilliance will not make us more acceptable to God the Father. In his prayer, when Jesus says the wise and the learned, um, he's talking about the intellectuals who trust in their brilliance, the beautiful who trust in their beauty, the rich who trust in their wealth, the religiously devoted who trust in their morality, the mighty who trust in their power. Jesus is addressing our temptation 
to trust in our resources without humbly following Jesus' little way of faith and obedience. So when Jesus talks about the wise, that's kind of who he has in mind. But still, why would Jesus give thanks for anybody not getting it? Why would he, why would he not want everybody to get it? I think Rick Warren touches up against this. The, the opening lines of his um, best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life, he says, it's not about you. Okay. The purpose of your life, he says, is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, he says, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose for his purpose. And the Bible delivers the shocking news that everything revolves around God's glory, not around our happiness. You see things like this. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 1 Corinthians 10, we're told, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the heavens and everything we do are operating according to design when they revolve around God and His glory. There's something in the universe more important than me. There's something in the universe more important than us. All of us homo sapiens, we're not the hub of the universe. And that something is our maker, the one who put us here. And and that is why Jesus thanks God when these wise guys have things hidden from them because the glory of God is at stake and Jesus is teaching us that is what matters supremely. But that's really not the main point of this kind of two-line prayer of thanks that Jesus prays. The main emphasis falls on his second phrase, the revealing part. When he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, uh, infants, babes. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Um, the Father reveals these things, Jesus' words and works, to little children, to helpless ones, such that they will believe. And again, it's not about age. It's about posture. It's about humility. It's about acknowledging our need for God's grace in this matter. That His gracious will is that these humble ones should come to believe in Jesus. So how you come to God matters a great deal, it seems. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story <clears throat> He's got in his crosshairs some folks who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector uh, in the lower echelon of society. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee prayed. But the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, every, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you bring your resume, ready to impress God? Most assuredly, God will not be impressed. You come empty-handed, knowing that you need grace and mercy, and He most certainly will be gracious. So there's hope for unlikely, undeserving people like you and me, as long as we put ourselves in that category. Would you put yourself in that category? Are you amongst the wise and the learned? Or are you like the little ones in great, great need? Some theologians or scholars on this article have suggested that this verse contains an implicit call to repentance, especially to theologians. He writes, those who work in theology and exegesis have the occupational hazard of thinking that close work with God's Word must make us, of course, especially close to God. Not necessarily the case. And then... um, He cites the Hawaiian pigeon translation of the New Testament, which is called Da Jesus Book. And I'll put it on the screen so you can read it with me because my pigeon is not real good. That time Jesus say, Mahalo plenty, thank you. Eh, because you showed this kind of stuff to the kids and hide them from the smart guys that know plenty. Dale Berner goes on to say that the plan, this is the plan, he says. Those who feel their sin are sorry for it and come asking for help. These find in Jesus' Father open arms. Okay? But those who feel their spiritual brilliance and are, and are sorry for those who fall so far beneath them, those who bask in self-importance and feel God is lucky to have them, they find in Jesus' Father his back. Which category are you in? The wise or the little ones? See, the good news is that Jesus' Father reveals these things about His Son to the little ones, folks like us, so that we can believe. The Father does that for us. And this is good news compared to last week and all the Sodom judgments. And it gets even gets even better. Verse 27, Jesus has finished his prayer. He's addressing the disciples now, and he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So once again, Jesus is pulling back the curtain, letting us peek at how the Trinity works. This is really sacred, mysterious ground we are on. The Father has given all authority to the Son. He really is the good and mighty King. 
Only the Father truly knows the Son, and only the Son truly knows the Father. D.A. Carson says there's a self-enclosed world of Father and Son that's open to others only by the revelation provided by the Son. Jesus says He is the exclusive agent of that revelation because only the Son truly knows the Father and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him to. Knowing the Father resides fully in the hands of the Son. Want to know the Father? You have to go through the Son, Jesus is saying. He says in John 14, as clear as you could say it, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Know Jesus, know the Father. Okay? Know Jesus, know Father. That's how it works. Jesus is teaching us that. Listen again to the pigeon translation of this verse 27. My father, give me everything you know. I his boy, that's why. Okay? Nobody know me like my father know me. And nobody know my father for real, kind of. Only me. I know him because I his boy. Okay? And the people I like show my father, they can know him for real, kind of, too. Now, wouldn't you know, I had somebody grew up in Hawaii in the first service and said my pigeon accent was miserable. So. <laughs> but, but you get the point, right? It all rests on the Son. If you want to know God the Father, you have to go through the Son. Jesus is claiming exclusivity. Don't mess around with other ways that claim other paths. Jesus, Jesus is making the way narrow through me, he says. You want to know the Father? It has to be revealed to you by the Son. So the question, is that good news or is that bad news? And what we're going to see in the next couple of verses as we close out is this is the very best news possible because Jesus has just made the way very narrow come through me and now he's going to open his arms wide and say come to me come to me come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The great invitation from Jesus, the Son, who holds salvation in his hands. He is saying to you, come to me. If you're burdened, heavily laden, and I will give you rest Eugene Peterson rends it this way in the message. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Then Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely 
and lightly. And Jesus says, it's for all. All. All who will admit their burden and come to him to be relieved. Sometimes that's just the burden of having to measure up, of having to be good enough, of trying to be perfect and never making it. Sometimes it's the burden of living in a broken world with unemployment and underemployment and broken relationships or no relationships, things like cancer. I got word this weekend, my sister's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. It's spread into her lymph nodes. Um, Our world's broken. And these are big burdens. But the biggest one The inescapable one is this burden of bearing your own sin of your past failures that you simply cannot get rid of. I love the way Max Lucado describes it. He says, it's it's like dragging around a bag of rocks. He He says, what do you do with your failures? Our mistakes come to us as pebbles, small stones that serve as souvenirs of our stumbles. We carry them in our hands, and soon our hands are full. So we put them in our pockets, and soon our pockets bulge. And we place them in a bag, and we put it over our shoulder, and the burlap scratches and chaps. And soon the bag of yesterday's failures is so heavy, we drag it. Could you do it all over again? He says, you'd do it differently. You'd be a different person. You'd be more patient. You'd control your tongue. You'd finish what you started. You'd turn the other cheek instead of slapping his. You'd get married first, or you wouldn't marry at all. You'd be honest. You'd resist the temptation. You'd run with a different crowd. But he says you can't. And as many times as you tell yourself what's done is done, what you did simply can't be undone. That's part of what Paul meant when he said the wages of sin is death. He didn't say the wages of sin is a bad mood or the wages of sin is a hard day or the wages of sin is depression. Read it again. He says the wages of sin is death. Sin is fatal. That's the bad news. But in these verses from Jesus, we find the very best of news. Jesus is inviting us to a relationship with him that brings us rest from the most unbearable of burdens, rest from our sins, rest for our souls. At last, there's a way to be free of our sin. And it's in communion with Jesus. Rest from all the other attempts to deal with our past. It's interesting, Jesus unyokes us from our burdens Not by offering us no yoke at all. He doesn't say, come to me with your heavy burdens and you'll be free. He says, come to me with your heavy burdens and put on my yoke and you'll find rest. A yoke was a wooden harness of sorts. It was put on on the backs of oxen so that they could pull really heavy loads. And it, it came to be used figuratively of slaves Grant Osborne says it became a metaphor almost of subjection to a conquering nation or king. Brought out the idea of a master-slave relationship. And it came to signify, the yoke did, to signify subjection and servitude. This is, this is what's so incredible about Jesus. He is, his burden is so amazingly good for us that he says the oxen, the slaves, will take it upon themselves 
voluntarily. They're going to they're going to take my yoke upon you. They're going to grab it and put it on. It's, it is a yoke that gives us rest. That's like no other yoke, no other master when we are enslaved to him to serve him brings rest. He's gentle. He's humble. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So light, twice he calls it rest. It's soul rest. He says, cease striving, be refreshed, rest, come to me, put on my yoke, and find soul rest. It all rides on Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way to bear these heaviest of burdens that we call sins. Philip Yancey writes about a British conference on comparative religions Experts from around the world were debating what, if any, was unique to the Christian faith amongst world religions. And they, they started eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate is going on for some time until C.S. Lewis, one of Britain's foremost Christian authors, wandered into this discussion. And he says, uh, what's the rumpus about? You can just hear Lewis saying that. And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, even the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional, he says. And then he says, you know, Hindu scholars have calculated with mathematical precision how long it may take for one person's justice to work itself out. For punishment to balance out all my wrongs in this life and future lives. Six million 800,000 incarnations should suffice. That's what Hinduism teaches. Christianity teaches only one incarnation is needed. The incarnation of God as a man in Jesus, the Son. Only Jesus offers a yoke that gives soul rest. So today... Jesus is saying, by your sitting here, hearing his words, he is saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, burdened in your souls, and I will give you rest. Exchange the burden of your own sin for my yoke. Come to him. Believe that he is the one sent by God to set you free from your sins by his death and resurrection on your behalf. And as we come to celebrate the table at the close of our service today, during that time, instead of just coming to the table, you should come to Jesus. Come to him and believe that he is the one sent by God. Place your faith in him and take his yoke upon you. And that's, 
How do you do that? What's that like? Um, Max Lucado has a delightful analogy that I'd like to share with you. It starts out with a friend who organizes a Christmas cookie swap for their church office staff, and the plan is simple. He says, price of admission is a tray of cookies. Your tray entitled you to pick cookies from the other trays. You could leave with as many cookies as you brought. He says, it sounds simple if you know how to bake cookies. He had no idea how to bake cookies. He says, this was my case, and I have a problem. I had no cookies to bring, hence I have no place at the party. I'd be left out, turned away, shunned, eschewed, dismissed. He says, are you feeling sorry for me? That was my plight. And he says, forgive me for bringing it up, but your plight's even worse. God is planning a party, a party to end all parties, not a cookie party, but a feast, not giggles and chit-chat in the conference room, but wide-eyed wonder in the throne room, the throne room of God. He says there's only one hitch. The price of admission is somewhat steep. In order to come to God's party, you need to be righteous, not good, not decent, Not a taxpayer or a churchgoer. Citizens of heaven are required to be righteous. He says, all of us occasionally do what's right. A few predominantly do what's right. But do any of us always do what's right? According to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says we don't. He says there's none righteous. No, not one. Some may beg to differ. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most folks. I've led a good life. I don't break the rules. I don't break hearts. I help people. I like people. Compared to others, I think I should say I am a righteous person. And then he says, I used to try that on my mother. She'd tell me my room wasn't clean. And I'd tell her, go with me to my brother's room. His was always messier than mine. And I'd say, see, my room's clean. Just look at his. Never worked. She'd walk me down the hall to her room. He says, when it came to tidy rooms, my mom was righteous. Her closet was just right. Her bed was just right. Her bathroom was just right. Compared to hers, my room was, well, just wrong. She would show me her room and say, that's what I mean by clean. He says, God does the same. He points to himself and says, this is what I mean by righteousness. He takes us back to that that Christmas party, that cookie exchange. And he said, a saintly sister in the church had mercy on me. How she heard of my problem, I do not know. Perhaps my name found its way on an emergency prayer list. But I know that the only moments that... I do know this. He said, only moments before the celebration, I was given a gift, a plate of cookies, 12 circles of kindness. By virtue of that gift, he said, I was privileged a place at the party. Did I go? You bet your cookies I did, he said. Like a prince carrying a crown on a pillow, I carried my gift Into the room, he says. I set it on the table and stood tall. And because some good soul heard my plea, I was given a place at the table. And he says, and because God hears your plea, 
you'll be given the same. Only he did more, so much more, than bake cookies for you. It was at once, he says, history's most beautiful and most horrible moment. Jesus stood in the tribunal of heaven, sweeping a hand over all of creation, and he pleaded, punish me for their mistakes. See the murderer? Give me his penalty. The adulteress, I'll take her shame. The bigot, the liar, the thief, do to me what you would do to them. Treat me, Jesus said, as you would a sinner. And God did. Peter says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The path of righteousness, he says, is a narrow winding trail up a steep hill, and at the top of that hill is a cross. At the base of the cross are bags, countless bags full of innumerable sins. Calvary is the compost pile for guilt. Would you like to leave yours there as well? He says, one final thought about the Christmas cookie party. Did everyone know I didn't cook the cookies? If they didn't, I told them. I told them I was present by virtue of someone else's work. My only contribution was my own confession. And so today, Jesus is inviting you to make that confession, to come to him, burdened by your own sin, and make the exchange where your sins are placed on him and his righteousness is placed on you by virtue of the great exchange that happened on the cross. Jesus is inviting you to find real soul rest. And so as, as those of us who are followers of Christ approach this table to remember Christ, you should receive Christ. You should place your faith in him and trust in him. For those of us who are already yoked to Christ, this same Jesus, gentle and humble, intends for us to walk with him in a way that day-to-day provides rest for our souls. Is that how you would describe your soul right now, your communion with Christ? Rested? That you are walking with Christ in such harmony, yoked to him so fully that your soul is experiencing rest. Jesus is saying to you as well, come to me, all you, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As you come to the table, lay aside any yoke of your own making and take my yoke upon you once again and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me, Jesus says, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.